Let's grab our Bibles this evening. It is, it's my privilege to be able to share the Word of God with you this evening, and I am very excited. It is good to be here. Uh, this evening, we're going to be looking at compromising, little things that we're always compromising. Um, we're going to look at, in Scripture, there some people who have compromised. My, uh, my prayer this evening is that you would walk away as the church blessed in two ways. First, that this week, Sunday night, as we get ready to go into the rest of the work, into the, the beginning of the work week, that you would live a holier life. My second prayer is that uh, after you walk away this evening and look at God's Word, that your appreciation and love for your Savior would be that much deeper. I pray that that would happen in my life and your lives as well. Uh, this week, uh, I was, I've been listening to uh, talk radio to try to figure out what in the world's going on with the whole government shutdown thing. And President Obama came on uh, the AM station, and he had given a little speech. And um, he made this one phrase that caught my attention. He goes, we need to learn to compromise. And he said, compromising is not a dirty word. And whether that's true in politics, I don't know. And I'm not even going to try to unravel that this evening. But that caught my attention. What about for me as a Christian? Is, comp- is there ever time that I can compromise? This morning I was coming to church, and uh, I wanted to be early, and I saw that I wasn't going to be as early as I thought, so speed limit's 60, so I started going a little faster. And I was like, wait a second, that's a compromise. I can't do that. We, um, we're in the car, and we get a, a phone call, and we don't have a wireless, and it's, but it's my wife. And these are things that I wrestle with. Maybe I should compromise. I, um, I get real funny driving with my wife. If I see somebody texting, I'm like, oh, I can't believe they're texting. And, um, man, a lot of times that gets turned right, on my, right at me. This one time we were sitting on 19th, and I looked over, and there was a lady on her phone. I thought she was texting. And I was like, I'm going to teach her a lesson. So I beeped my horn real loud, and she jumped up like this, and she looks at me, and she goes, I'm not texting. I'm on the phone. (laughs) Okay. And then a little bit later, guess what I catch myself doing? Same thing. But but I had a good reason. I had a reason to compromise. (laughs) It was my wife. But we do these things where we make compromises I'd like you to turn to 1 Samuel 6. That's where we're going to be spending the majority of our time in 1 and 2 Samuel this evening. As you turn there, I'd like to give you a few examples of compromises that were made throughout Scripture. Adam compromised God's law. He followed his wife's sin and lost paradise. Abraham compromised the truth, lied about Sarah, and nearly lost his wife. Moses compromised, obeying God's command, and lost the privilege of entering the promised land. Samson compromised his vow, and he lost his strength, his eyes, and his life. Saul compromised, not slaying the animals and his enemy, and he lost his kingdom. 
David compromised and committed adultery and murder and lost his infant son. Solomon compromised and married foreign wives and lost the United Kingdom. Judas compromised his devotion to Christ for 30 pieces of silver and lost his soul. Many of us allow ourselves compromise. And we tell ourselves these little lies that go like this. It's only a little bit. That's one lie we tell ourselves. And the other thing we tell ourselves is, God will forgive me. Right? That's how I, get, that's how I let myself off the hook. God will forgive me for that one. So I compromise. 1 Samuel 6, 1 starts out like this. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Before we go any further, I'd like to talk about a couple things there that lay the foundation for where we're going to go. Um, the ark of the covenant, I, this is not the real ark of the covenant. I've looked for all over the church to find something that was close to it. The Ark of the Covenant was a little bit longer, a little bit deeper, and a little bit taller. It was three, three feet by three quarters, by, by two and a quarter, by two and a quarter. It was given to, it, the instructions were given to the Israelites at the Mount Sinai. And it is one of the characteristics of the Israelites is that wherever they went, this went before them. It was made, God said, to make it specifically this way, okay? He said, I want it to be these dimensions, made of acacia wood. And then I said, he said, I want the whole thing on the out and on the inside to be totally encased in gold. How they did that in, I think, the Bronze Era is still a mystery, how they were able to take gold and overlay it perfectly. On the inside, there were three things. All I have in mind is, uh, I have God's word in here, it, which stands for the Ten Commandments were in there. They were God's law. God's law, which clearly shows that I cannot attain God's perfection. If you read the book of Hebrews, you'll find out that also in the ark, was Aaron's staff, which had budded, which shows God's choice. God had chosen Aaron's line to be the priest. Also, if you read in uh, Hebrews, you'll find out that there was a golden urn of manna, which was a reminder of God's provision. All of these things, if we could dig into them and see how Christ fulfills all of them, they were inside this ark. This was the, the tokens of the covenant. Now, if that's not enough, on top, God said, I want it to be one piece, of and it's to be covered in hammered gold. And then, I don't know how they did this, but on top of the lid, which was called the mercy seat, there was two angels called cherubims, and they faced each other, one facing this way, the other facing this way. God said, I want their heads to be bowed down, like this, and I want their wings to be pointed towards each other and touching. You see, this was a, if you look at Hebrews, it says these, um, the things in the Old Testament are a shadow and a copy of the things that are in heaven. 
And this ark stood for the very center of the throne room of God. The cherubim, possibly one of their jobs, if you read Isaiah 6, if you'll notice, God's throne doesn't touch the ground. It's the floating throne. It doesn't touch its creation. I was reading some commentaries. The reason it doesn't touch is because the cherubims, they hold it up. And so because of that, God said, my ark is to be carried a certain way. And they had long poles attached, one on this side and one on this side with four golden rings. And only the Levites could carry, that, carry this ark. No one else was to draw near it. No one else was to carry it. And between, and God's presence would come down to rest between and above these cherubims. And this is where he dwelled and spoke. And this is where the sacrifices were before, right there. Isn't that amazing? And if you read Isaiah 6, you can see the heavenly picture of this. What is the ark doing with the Philistines. I'm sure you've heard of the Philistines. They're most known as the, um, the main enemies of Israel. Their name means wanderer or sea people. And they kind of, as I was reading and studying on them, they almost reminded me of pirates. They lived on the shores of Israel, and they were constantly at war with Israel. How in the world did they get the ark? I was reading in Judges 3, 4, and it, gave, it gives a purpose for God's purpose for the Philistines. This is what it says. Judges 3, 4, it speaks of the Philistines and some of the other surrounding nations, and it says they were for a testing Israel. Why? Why are you testing Israel? To find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord. And here is the ark, and it is with the Philistines. What happened? In order to see these things, we're going to have to go back to get some context. So far, we've only gone over one verse. First Samuel opens up, and the priests that are in charge are Eli and his sons, Hophni and... Um, I lost the other son's name. Phineas. Thank you. They were ungodly men. What, one of the things that a priest was to do was he was to take a, a pot and it was to boil the sacrifice in the pot and he could take a, um, a three-pronged fork and dig it in and whatever came out was his to take. So what these priests would do especially Eli's sons, is they would not allow the meat to be boiled. You know why? Because boiled meat falls apart. Meat that is not boiled, if you stick your fork in, you get the whole thing. And so they would take all of what was for the Lord. So the second thing, another thing that um, 1 Samuel says in the beginning that they did was that um, if, um, if you came to bring your meat and you said, could you burn the fat before the Lord? Because it was to go up as a sweet-smelling savor. They would say, no, give us the meat or we will take it by force. They would take advantage of women 
who would come to the temple, and Eli said to his sons, you make the people of Israel transgress. Here you have men who are supposed to be leading God's people, and they are causing them to transgress. Eli was judged by the Lord because, one, he allowed his sons to continue. Two, Eli, it says in Scripture, was a very heavy man. He was very heavy from taking what was the Lord's and eating it for himself. Ironically, that's what was part of what killed him. God sent a man to warn Eli, and he said that uh, both of your sons, for what has happened, are going to die. And something is coming that will make every single person's ears in the land tingle. What that means is that something so great is coming that your ears are going to shake. Like we would say your lip will quiver because of fear. They would say your, your ears will tingle, will tingle. Shortly after that, the Philistines go into battle with the Israelites. And the first time, they beat the Israelites to the Israelites' surprise. So the Israelites think, what can we do because we're God's people, imagine their surprise when they are beaten by pagans. What, what should we do? So what they figure is, let's get the ark. Because remember, when we take the ark into battle, remember Jericho? Remember um, when we went into, into Jordan and we touched the water with the ark? Maybe we should get the ark. And so you know who they call? They call Eli's two sons. And they say, go get the ark for us and bring it, into, bring it into battle. And so Eli's two sons go and they bring the ark. And it says that the cry of the Israelites was so great that the land shook. And there's a little application in there. Just because you're excited about something, just because you, the, their cry rose up, doesn't mean that the Lord is with them. That's a, that's a good lesson for me. Well, to their shock, the Philistines win. Not only do they win, but Scripture says there was a great slaughter. Both of Eli's sons are killed. And wonder of wonder, how could this ever happen? The ark has been captured. God's holy ark has been captured by the Philistines, and the nation's ears begin to shake. They tingle. When the news gets back, and Eli hears of it, he hears that his sons have been killed at battle. He's not surprised. But when he hears that the ark has been captured, in shock, he falls backwards off of his stool, breaks his neck, and dies. The next person that uh, the news is brought to is uh, Phineas' wife. When she hears that the ark has been stolen, she goes into labor. Immediately, she goes into labor and she delivers a son. And scripture says that she cared not for him, but named him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. You see, for Israel... What does it mean that they don't have the ark? You see, the ark was where they brought their sacrifices. How will they find atonement for their sin? 
They won't. The ark was where God came and rested and spoke. How will they hear from the Lord? They can't. And the sad irony is that they had not atoned for their sins and they had not heard from the Lord because of the evil priests for a long time. It's just that they hadn't noticed until disaster had hit. Meanwhile, the Philistines have taken the ark and they have victoriously set it at the feet of Dagon. Dagon was the fish god. Half fish, half man. They say that uh, um, Dagon was the father of the wicked Baal, another idol. So to, to show that they are victorious and that their god is more powerful, they take the ark and they take it to the temple of Dagon and they set it at his feet. The priests do. And when they come back the next day, Dagon is face down. The priests think, wow, I hope that was an accident. What does this mean? So they set Dagon back up. They got to set their God back up. That's a bummer. The next day, they go in again. And this time, Dagon has fallen down again. And his hands are broken off. He is helpless. And his head is broken off. He is a lifeless God, and he is bowing down before the ark. As you can imagine, the priests, they don't want the ark any longer in the temple. And so from this point on, the ark goes around to three of the five Philistine cities, and every single one, from young to old, the people break out with tumors. They break out with boils. And then rats come, and they go over the land, they go in their homes, and they plague the people. And the ark goes from one city, which it happens to, to another, to another. When finally, the Philistines say, we have to, the, the, the leaders say, we have to get rid of this ark. And they say, and what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? And this is the solution that they come up with. In order to prepare the ark to be sent back to Israel, 1 Samuel 6, 3 says, do not send it empty. Let's look at uh, 1 Samuel 6, 4. Then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistine, for the same plague was on all of you and your lords. Isn't it funny the things that uh, we do to try to honor God? For, for some reason, the Philistines thought, if I make a golden sculpture of a tumor or a boil, that will honor God. How about a golden rat? How about five golden rats? That, that, that will honor God. And the funny things that we do because we think it will honor the Lord. They go on. I think this part's amazing. In 5 it says, Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of the rats and that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel, perhaps. And perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your heart as the Egyptians and the Pharaohs hardened their hearts? 
when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore, listen carefully, do these things. Verse 7, now therefore make a new cart and take two milk cows which have never been yoked and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. This is amazing. And I know a lot of you have worked with cattle, so you can appreciate this. If you've ever tried to take away a cow from her calf, it's a fiasco. My cousin was needed to doctor a calf, so he grabbed the calf, jumped in his truck. The cow jumped in the truck after him, so he ran out the other side, and the cow went the whole way through taking the steering wheel with him. It, if you ever try to separate a calf and a cow, it's hard. It's hard work. So what the Philistines do, they're going to make sure, they're going to make sure that this just wasn't coincidence. One, make sure these, cat, these cows aren't trained. We don't want trained cows, okay? Then they need to be pulling. Make it a new cart. Don't get some old cart. Let's put these rats and tumors on a new cart. So they, and then they say, take the calves and lock them away. Who's going to drive? Nobody. Turn them loose, and there's a road that goes this way, and then there's a road that goes to Beth Shemesh. And if the cows go that way, we'll know that it was coincidence. However, if the cows go walking towards Israel, we'll know that this is the work of God. So they turn the cows loose. Let's keep reading. Then the men did so. They took the two milk cows, and this is verse 10, I'm sorry. Then the men did so. They took the two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of the tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went. And they did not return aside to the right or to the left. If you've ever separated a cow and a calf, the cow is amazingly loud. It bellers and bellers and bellers, and here comes these two cows against their will, carrying the ark towards Israel. That would have been a sight. I mean, it's, it's almost as if they're announcing their presence. Here they come. And then you have in, further down here in 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their, har- their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. What a day that would have been. The ark is returning. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as burnt offerings to the Lord. And the Levites took the ark of the Lord and the chest was upon it in which the articles of gold and put them in the large stone. Immediately they make a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord. They chop up the cart. They chop up the cows and they offer them to the Lord. And then they get curious. I wonder... I wonder if the Philistines have been eating some of that manna inside the ark. I wonder if they messed with anything. And so they break God's law and they they peek in. 
Verse 19 says, Then he struck the, Beth, the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,000 and 70 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy God? Can you imagine that day? They intentionally sinned, looked into the ark, and God punished them. Verse 7 opens up. We find that here's what they're going to do with the ark. They take it to the house of Abinadab on the hill that was consecrated to Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. Verse 2, so it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years. And 20 years, the people leave the ark there. During this time, Samuel takes over the priesthood. The people reject God because the nations had kings and they want a king. So Saul is chosen. Saul is followed by a lot of disappointments of, not trust, of fearing man, not trusting God. And so God chooses, he cuts off Saul's line, and he chooses another man, a man who he says is after his own heart, and David is anointed. 1 Samuel ends, and 2 Samuel begins with Saul trying to preserve his throne, but it is obvious from the cheers of the people Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands, that David is the next in line. And David becomes king. In first, second Samuel, these are good times for Israel. David unites in chapter 5. Let's go ahead and turn to Second Samuel. You can put your finger right in chapter 6. In chapter 5, David reigns, extends over all of Israel. And he has a terrific victory over the Philistines. And unlike Saul, verse 525 reads, David did so as the Lord commanded him. Israel had been united under one king. King David is doing as the Lord required. And the Lord's enemies are being driven out. These are good times. There's only one thing missing. The ark. And it has not been moved nor mentioned of in Scripture for 20 years. It's just sad. So verse 6, 1, 2 Samuel 6, 1, they're going to go gather the ark and make this picture complete. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill, and Uzzah. And Ohio and the sons of Abinadab drove the new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And uh, Ohio went before the ark. Listen to this. You can just picture this. Then David and all the house of Israel played music for the Lord of all kinds 
with all kinds of instruments, of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, and tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. What a day. The ark is returning. Israel is united under one king. The king is victorious. The king loves the Lord. Let's go get the ark. And they go to bring the ark. Let's put it on a new cart. And they're going into the city. And there's people rejoicing until one of the oxen stumble. That's it. It just stumbles. And everything stops. Verse 6. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. Verse 8, and David became angry. Because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And that means God broke out against this man. And you read those verses, and you think, man, all that the guy did was try to help out, right? I mean, what if the ark would have fallen? David wrestled with God that day. I think as a church and as Christians, there are things for us to wrestle with in this passage. You see, um, Jonathan Edwards preached through a sermon on this, and he said that Uzzah made the mistake of thinking that his hand was cleaner than dirt. Uzu was wrong. We need to consider for this a little bit this evening God's holiness and what the what that ark stood for. First I want to the first lesson I want us to, to learn this evening is what or whom are we following? Did you notice in verse three? So they set the ark of God on a new cart. Where's the last time you heard that? When was the last time that the cart, that the ark was carried on a cart? It was 20 years ago. 20 years ago at this place by the Philistines. There's a lesson here. See, the ark was meant to be carried a specific way. It was meant to be carried on poles. You weren't supposed to touch it. But the Philistines, these were forward-thinking people. They were in war, in warcraft, in tools, in trade. They were very far advanced past the Israelites. In 1 Samuel 13, I thought this was very interesting. All the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, and his sickle. If the Philistines needed to sharp, get their tools sharpened, they couldn't even do it themselves. They had to go to the Philistines because they had the technology. Isn't that interesting? 
And so when war came, you know what the Philistines did? They pulled all their blacksmiths out of the land because they wanted to make sure that Israel wasn't making swords. And when, the Philist, when Philistia thought they would honor the Lord with the perversion of golden rats and tumors and new carts, Israel followed suit. That's where they got that idea from. That's where they got the idea for the new cart. And rather than considering the instruction of God, they followed suit of Philistine technology. Do we do this? Rather than obey God, we use Philistine technology? Let me give you an example. A a while ago, um, it was a, a dating couple who were struggling struggling physically with each other. And the way that they couched it was, you know, we are struggling. But the more people we meet with, the more people we find out they're struggling too. And it's just good to know that we're not alone. Guys, we'll do this. We'll do this. You're struggling in our mind? We'll say, I think every man struggles this way. At work, if they're maybe cut a little corner, and we think, you know what? In this industry, this is what you got to do to get ahead. Everybody else is doing this too. If you don't do this, you're not going to get ahead. And we can take this mentality of taking our eyes off of what the Lord has told us to do and put it on our neighbors and live by their standards rather than God's standards in every area of our life. Like, even as I think about this, things come to my mind that I'm tempted to consider the world's standard, consider their statistics because it makes me feel a little better. But what I forget is that I serve a holy God who has given specific instructions for us to live. And the second thing I'd like us to consider is that when we make these compromises, exactly what is being compromised Two things. The first is God's holiness, and the second is precious blood that we are expecting God to compromise. If we go back to the story, we think in our head, Uzzah just touched the ark, and he was actually trying to help out. It was just a little touch. What's the big deal? You see, it's not just a little touch. I'll read that quote from Jonathan Edwards again. Uzzah presumed his hands were cleaner than dirt. Uzzah was wrong. and He'd forgotten Leviticus 10.3 that says, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. And if you catch yourself thinking it was just a little, you, you need and you have forgotten what it means that God is holy. Holiness means he is separate from us. He is the God who is high and lifted. He is the altogether different than me. If he's separate, I just can't reach out my hand and, and, and compromise. Uzzah had taken for granted the substitutionary blood which was sprinkled on the, mercy, on the mercy seat. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, 
There is no remission for sin. I want, I want to, illustrations help me. If God's word was inside this ark, the, command, the commandments, and only one man has kept the law perfectly, and that was Jesus Christ, we break this law every second. Can you name one second that you love the Lord your God with all your heart? It's not one. I'm guilty of breaking God's law. It was in the ark. On the mercy seat was where God came down to meet with guilty man. How in the world can a sinner like me or any of the Israelites ever come face to face? There's only one thing. You see, what they would do is they would have a sacrifice and the ark was covered not covered, but sprinkled, sprinkled with blood. And so that when God came down to rest between these cherubims, do you think he saw the broken covenant in here? No. He saw the, there's been a payment. Something has happened in order to pay for the broken law, the broken covenant. And when Uzzah had touched that, he took for granted that I can just walk up and grab this any day. As if I can just waltz on into the Holy of Holies and say, whoa, let me use your throne there for you, God. No. God doesn't need anybody's help. You know, we do this. In Romans, it talks about, Romans 2, it says that the law is written on our heart. And by the way, this ark, the name for it, another word for ark could be called casket. And inside that casket was God's perfect law. And inside this casket, inside this flesh that you see that will pass away, God says that the law is written on our hearts. And we are guilty. We stand guilty before a holy God. How in the world will guilty man like that and a holy God ever have a relationship? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And it says in Hebrew, I was reading, meditating on Hebrews 10, and it talks about, um, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. How can we... Be bold and approach the throne only by one way, by blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 22 goes on and it says that our hearts are sprinkled and our conscience are cleansed and our bodies are washed with water. You see that, this, this throne room of what happened then is a, a picture and a shadow of what Christ has done for us. Paul said, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. And when we compromise, we might as well be Uzzah, reaching out our hand. And if it wasn't for Christ, we would deserve and do deserve the same punishment. You know, um, like all of us, I, man, I, I've wrestled with a lot of sin. 
there's been sin in my life that has been rooted for years. I can tell you the place. I was driving a skid steer and sinful thoughts crept into my mind. And during that time, praise the Lord, I'd also been meditating on two things. One, the holiness of God and that he is everywhere, that he sees me. And I remember thinking, Andy, how in the world can you entertain this thought? Can you compromise this thought in the presence of a holy God who sees you? Either you are an atheist or you're suicidal. When I started thinking about God's holiness, that put a good, precious fear that drove out sin I would encourage you to meditate on God's holiness and his standards for you and the precious blood that, declare, that because of that declares you holy. You compromise. It's not just a little touch. It's Peter, First Peter says it's precious blood. Another testimony. There was a fella that... Um, used to irritate me. And uh, I, w- I would couch, this is what we do as Christians, is we couch with kind words. And I say, man, that guy really irritates me. And then I found out that he didn't just irritate me. I was angry at him. What does that mean? If I'm angry at him, and then I, do I hate him? I would encourage you to start calling your sin, sin. What we do as Christians is we couch. You know, I'm wrestling with my thought life. That is a couched term. You know, sometimes I get a little, I get a little bitter. That's a couched term. When we stop saying, Uzzah just touched the ark, we'll see that our God is holy. He, deme- he expects the same of us. You know, I would encourage you to Call your sin in truthful, blunt terms. And do you know what that will do? You will feel shame. And we should. Our sin is shameful. And when we see our sin as shameful, and disgusting and gross, not just I touched the ark. That is when we will see the gospel as powerful, as beautiful. Look at the example of Paul. I was a murderer. Do you think, can you imagine Paul laying his head down at night and all those faces of the people rolling through his mind that he had killed, that he had run from their home, he says, I was the chief of sinners. And then right after that, you know what he said? Where, great, where sin abounds and my sin abounds, whew, grace abounds. That's good. When we see how low we are, we will see how high Christ reached down to pick us up. We need to start calling sin, sin, rather than it was just, uh, that's called compromise. Jesus he sums this up as we close. 
when he was talking about the, um, the prostitute. She, she's there wiping, her feet, wiping his feet with her hairs, and she's broken. And Jesus says, do you see this woman? Her sin, which was great, is forgiven. You see, to him who has been forgiven much, you know what the result is? Loves much. You want to love the gospel more? It's not just a touch. It's not just a fleeting thought. It's not just a, a cutting of a corner. It's bad. And that's what makes the gospel so good. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Forgive us, Lord, for not loving you as we should. Lord, you have saved us and you have redeemed rotten people who are wicked to the core. And I don't like to say that because it doesn't feel good, Lord, but it's true. And Lord, you are doing a good work. And you are making us beautiful. You are making us a beautiful bride by your words and your actions in the cross, Lord. And like we sang earlier, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. Lord, help us to magnify your grace, Lord, and help us to take seriously our sin. We ask these things in your name. Amen.